Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we'll be talking about all things great and small in the animal kingdom. We often take animals for granted as they're all around us, but what's the history of domestication? What do we define as an animal? How big can an animal be or how small can it be for actually be defined? And what actually makes them flight or run away when they're near humans? We look at some interesting research on the topic of animals and their interactions with humanity. One of the many enrapturing parts of nature is the animals that live there and their interaction with the plants and wildlife around them. Now, we see ourselves as often different from animals. And then even amongst animals, we have different levels of classification. Others that we're more familiar with and others that we have around us and those that are wild. And often we call this the difference between wild animals, tame animals, and animals that we've domesticated. But there's a big question here about why are some animals that are wild you know, more able to tolerate humans? And how does that relate to, you know, our long history of domestication and what it means to be tame? So, a few definitions first. A tame animal is one we define as, as a propensity for being relatively tolerant of human presence. That means, basically, you know, it's got a, a welcoming or a tolerable um, acceptance of humans around it. So, you can obviously, you know, find a squirrel that you might be able to feed in a park or a possum, for example. That's, that's a tame animal. That animal has not been, you know, farmed or any sense, or it's, it's not going to live in our, inside our house, but it, it can tolerate us. We can feed it. It has a relationship where it knows that humans aren't a threat. And domestication is a more larger process that moves from being an individual animal or type of animal to overall an entire species that has been taken in by humans and slowly adapted over a long course of time. And we are really talking a very long course of time. The first animal that we really tamed enough to become a domesticated creature was, of course, the dog. We, we, we tamed that from the wild wolves around 33,000 BCE in Europe. And obviously sheep, pigs, goats, cattle, zebus, a number of other animals all followed since then. And we domesticated them in a long, slow process. So when we say domesticate, what do we actually mean? Well, to actually domesticate an animal, uh, according to the evolutionary biologist Gerard Diamond, um, you need to meet six different criteria. Obviously, they need to have a flexible diet because, you know, a lot of the time we have to give them food if we're domesticating them and we need to make sure that they've actually got a supply that we can feed. So if they only eat a rare type of food and we can't provide that, then that's not great. They have to have a reasonably fast growth rate and fast maturity rate because otherwise, you know, if we, if, if we want to eat them or if we want to use them, they need to actually um, reproduce fast enough for how to do that. We also need to be able to breed them in captivity. If there's things like pandas, which are very, very reluctant to breed in captivity, then it's not going to help. They also need to have a relatively pleasant disposition so that large creatures that are very, very aggressive towards humans aren't really able to be domesticated. You know, example is the African buffalo, which is very unpredictable and, and highly dangerous, which makes it very hard to domesticate. Now, we also need to have something with the temperament. Uh, we want to have something that is unlikely to panic. Um, so if you think about a large flock of gazelles, you know how they, they have that panic and stampede. If you've seen The Lion King, you'll be familiar with how devastating that can be. But if you have something that doesn't panic a lot, especially when in large crowds, that's good. That means we can we can sort of keep them in pens and they're not going to freak out too much. 
and we need to be able to have one with a modifiable social hierarchy. Uh, social creatures that have herds, uh, that's okay because you can actually sort of establish the human as the head of the pack or a pack leader, which is also what we did with dogs and wolves. Um, but animals that are very, very solitary uh, don't often play well to be kept, being kept in pens. So, for example, tapirs and rhinoceroses. That's, that's a reason why we haven't domesticated those animals. Now, when you've got these animals and you start keeping them and feeding them, uh, we, we usually have then three classes of them. And so archaeozoology, which is basically archaeology and zoology's cross-hybrid, defines us as either having commensals, so animals that are adapted to a human niche, such as pets, like dogs, cats, and guinea pigs. Other ones that are prey animals that we sort for food, like cows, sheep, and goats. And the third type is targeted animals for draft or non-food purposes. So animals like horses, camels, and donkeys, which we said, hey, actually, we're going to work with you. So those are the three reasons why we domesticate. And so domestication is a long process. Uh, we also do it with plants. Let's not ignore our domestication of plants for over 12,000 years as well. That's basically the basis of farming. Um, but that takes animals from being wild to being tame to being domesticated. But in the terms of the wild animal, why are those wild animals, why are some of them more tolerant to human interaction than others? Some more recent research done by Daniel Blumstein, uh, professor and chair of ecology and evolutionary biology at UCLA, they analyzed about 75 studies over the past half century of 212 different animal species, Look, mostly birds and some also mammals and lizards. And they went through and they estimated and analyzed the tolerance to human disturbance by actually looking at how far away from humans animals would have to be before it fled. And I like this because it's called the flight initiation distance. How close can you get to the animal before it freaks out and runs away? And this was just recently published in the journal Nature Communications. So what they found was that birds in more heavily populated urban areas are much more tolerant to humans than birds in rural areas. And also, the bigger the bird is, the more tolerant they are to humans. So small birds can be more freaked out and flee, so or have a higher flight initiation distance um, than larger birds. And there's some amazing pictures of the researchers standing around pelicans to emphasize this point. Now, what this new analysis has showed is that large animals are more likely to be disturbed in remote areas by people. But if the human and animal interactions are mostly benign and, the, and if the animal can tolerate humans, the larger species actually then learn that people are not very threatening. So that whilst the interactions are rare, as most of the outcomes are generally positive, they, they, they learn re- reasonably quickly that you know, humans can be tolerated. Um, so this actually flips what was previously established thought that uh, larger animals were more likely to flee from humans rather than the small ones. Um, so this is actually quite an important finding. And the reason that they, they believe is that it's actually probably more costly for a large animal to flee and try and run away simply because of the energy involved as opposed to a small boat, which can, was usually darting around anyway. So the rapid movement change as opposed to a potential threat is not such a big deal, but for a large animal that requires a significant effort, which kind of makes sense. Now, there are other factors that also adjusted uh, the, the, the flight initiation uh, statistic, and these include the you know, bird's diet, the openness of their habitat, the number of the eggs they lay, which is obviously an important factor um, because it sort of talks about their, toler- their, their tolerance to uh, threats. But there wasn't actually any other, any other significant difference or significant uh, correlation between any of the other factors, including urban and rural, as body size. So body size was really the most dominant factor uh, for, common- for commonality with the flight rep mechanism. 
So really this is emphasizing though, there's a lot of other factors at play and they all have their own involvement. Um, the most likely correlation is actually between um, large body size and the propensity for flight. So bigger animals, less likely to move if they can be shown that things are okay. So this gives us a bit of an insight into what's going on with our creatures as we domesticate them and as they grow and learn to adapt and cope with humans in their environment. Alright, I'm going to play a quick game. And that game is uh, Guess the Animal. Now I'm going to name something and uh, you know we're going to go through whether or not that's actually an animal. So obviously, a tree. Well, that's not quite an animal. Uh, what about a shark? Yep, no, no, that's an animal. What about a jellyfish? Yep, no, we get that's an animal too. What about some bacteria? Now, no, actually, we don't call that an animal. What about, you know, single-celled organisms? Technically, a lot of the time, we don't call those animals either. But some recent research that was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Scientists, conducted by researchers at the University of Kansas, has really kind of flipped some of this on their head. Now, I'm not saying that trees are animals, but they've actually found that a jellyfish, a type of jellyfish, was hiding in a place that they were not really expecting it to be. In fact, they were hiding it in a place and thought it was in fact not an animal at all at first glance. And it was only through later sequencing that they realised what on earth is going on here. So, we're going to talk about animals and what makes an animal. We need to first define it in a bit more detail. Generally, the definition we use for an animal is something that is multicellular, uh, also that they're eukaryotic organisms, um, which, which basically means that they have, a me- they have membrane-bound organelles around, especially the nucleus, right? So their genetic material is enclosed in the nucleus envelope. So if they have eukaryotic cells, then that is also a criteria for being an animal. Um, we also define them as being motile, which means they can move spontaneously and independently at some point in their life. And generally that they have uh, their body plan eventually becomes fixed as they developed. And we also define them as being heterotrophs. That means they must ingest some other organism for sustenance. Now, that's generally how we define an animal. And then obviously we've got subcategories like vertebrates, mollusks, arthropods, and annelids, sponges, and jellyfish. So that's sort of the subfamilies underneath the overall um, kingdom of animalia, right? So that's how we define an animal. And if you're a biologist, you can get really, really specific into that. But fortunately for us, we're going to sort of move on from there now. Um, Now, why this is interesting is that when you define um, an animal, that sort of gives you some rule sets and sort of what you expect an animal to be and what you don't expect an animal to be. And we're all pretty familiar with jellyfish. They're they're a type of animal. Um, We're also probably familiar with their painful stings. And what they've actually found at the University of Kansas is a very, very weird jellyfish. Or rather, a really, really weird microscopic organism made of only a few cells that live outside other animals. So they've been looking at these microscopic parasites that infect invertebrate and vertebrates hosts. And what they've determined from this by studying the actual genes of this microscopic parasite is that it actually doesn't just behave like a jellyfish. It's actually a member of very highly specified, highly reduced cnidarin, which is part of the jellyfish coral and sea anemone family. And it's just 
it's a remarkable case of extreme degeneration of an animal body plan. So, you know, when you think about an animal, you think about you've got arms and legs and a head and a tail and whatever. And this has just been stripped back and stripped back to get back to the, you know, almost fundamentals. One thing here, one tentacle, one body, blah, and one couple of cells here and there. And they've made a jellyfish just out of a few cells, which is quite phenomenal. And what actually means it, then they can prove that it's not just something that looks like a jellyfish, it actually is a jellyfish, is that the genome, that when they study the genome, it is pretty much the same as an actual jellyfish in the Snyderan family. Now, it's very, very reduced because it's about the genome itself is about 20 to 40 times smaller than the average jellyfish genome, but it is still matched. It has about 20 million base pairs as opposed to the average for the family, which is about 300 million. But despite its radical phase-down and streamlining of all the core functionality of a jellyfish, it's, it's been evolving over millions of years. It's still got the basics of a jellyfish, a stinger or an, a nematocyst, and all the genes to make it. And it's very, very weird because it's difficult to imagine a jellyfish in this way. They, they don't have a mouth, they don't have a gut, they're just a few cells but it's still got all of the, the stinging apparatus that makes, you know, defines what often what a jellyfish is. And so when they've been finding these parasitic cells inside of fish or other sea creatures, they've actually been finding jellyfish, and it, it helps them actually understand what is going on. They've understood the biology for a long time. They've been able to study these parasites, but this is the first time that they've realized that you can actually get animals and species down to a few cells measuring 10 to 20 microns across. And we really thought that this, these couldn't be animals. Animals couldn't get down to that size. But these jellyfish have proven that size is no boundary as long as you're willing to play the, wrong, the long game and streamline yourself to just the core functions. So maybe that's a lesson for us all. If we want to be functioning at a microscopic level, we'll just have to slowly evolve and chop off all the genes that we need, and then maybe, too, we could get the base human experience at a few cells across, or human-ish, in want of a better word. Because that's effectively what the jellyfish have done here over a long period of time. Mind you, a jellyfish is a lot less complicated than a human, and really the essence of a jellyfish can be summed up as having the stinger part and a few other cells, whereas I don't think we can reduce humans to that level. But it's an interesting prospect to actually understand that animals can actually miniaturize themselves over a long evolutionary process. And it gives us a way to relook at some potentially other microscopic parasites to see if they too are actually animals that have just slimmed themselves down. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we found out that large animals are actually less likely to flee from humans, and also that super small animals can exist on an almost cellular level. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.